Hello, and welcome to the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Camuso-Miller. I'm a public affairs professional in Washington, D.C., and I interview members of the media about their background, about how they got into journalism, and lots of other topics. The Friday Reporter is a PR Daily podcast. Check out PR Daily for ideas, inspiration, and trends on all things public affairs and to find the Friday Reporter podcast. Well, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. Today's episode is, well, one that I'm really looking forward to because I get to talk to not only a great columnist for The Daily Beast, uh, an author of uh, the book Too Dumb to Fail, uh, but also a host uh, and podcaster uh, for Matt Lewis and the News. Matt, thanks for being with me. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Matt, I've followed your career a long time, and you've been at this for, for a while, and I think um, it's certainly, it's interesting to me how it's evolved and changed. You always seem to be seeing around the curve and, and writing and talking about things, even before, you know, folks like me are thinking about doing a podcast. You've already got it all set up and figured out. Talk to me, though. How did you get into this business? How did you get started? So originally, I thought I was going to be a, a political operative. Um, someone who, you know, worked on campaigns and because I love politics, but I just discovered that um, that really wasn't my calling, partly because I think I was a little bit too artistic and contrarian uh, for that job. Um, and so I, thankfully, the blogosphere, and I was able to use that kind of as a bridge to transition from doing campaigns to writing about campaigns. And um, and I just basically have, have uh, worked at it. You know, I started doing it for free at human events where they're, uh, when they launch their website, blogging at human events. And then I got hired at townhall.com. Mm-hmm. And I was actually the director of operations, but I, um, I negotiated saying, like, if I do this job, you have to let me blog, you know, right on the town hall blog. Yeah. Um, and so I really snuck my way in to becoming a, a columnist. And um, it, took, it took years, actually, just to, to actually get paid um, to be a writer as opposed to, um, you know, getting paid for something else and writing being the fringe benefit that I uh, was, was getting on the side. Right. Right. And, and certainly, I mean... It's paid off because folks, your following is is strong. You're always thoughtful and sort of seeing, like I said before, I mean, you're really sort of seeing ahead of the curve, like what's coming up next, um, trying to sort of put uh, what's happening in politics into the context of history. I love that about what you do because I think you don't think about just, you know, how things today are just the way they are. You remind us, you know, where we've been before and how it is it's going and where you think things potentially could be going in the future. Um, congratulations on not being a political operative. I also uh, at one point aspired to be that, and I'm grateful that uh, I don't have to count on that cycle. Although both my children were born uh, either like right before or right after Election Day. <laughs> so we sort of t- time that out, I'm sure. I, I bet I bet there's plenty of us uh, in town that have had the same story. Um and so now we did it. Yeah, we totally did it on purpose. My wife is a political fundraiser, so we we definitely did that. I um, one one was born in January, and one was born in November. So. Yep. 
I have a February and a November. So, and I suspect they have lots of friends inside the Beltway that have similar birthday areas. That's hilarious. Um, so, talk to me though. You know, so now here we are. Uh, fast forward p- past Town Hall. You have done. You've done a bunch of TV. I mean, you're you're everywhere and you're doing a lot of things. Um, but now you're at the Daily Beast, uh, and you're. I, I've, already talked to Jackie Kucinich and I had a great conversation a couple months back about the work that the Daily Beast does. Help me understand a little bit better about about the column and what it is that that you're focused in on and you're caring about and writing about so that those of the the audience that's listening in that want to know how they connect with Matt Lewis or how they share stories with you, what is it that you're caring about right now? Well, I mean, first let me say, um, to me, the way to and you said I've been doing this a long time, and, and the way to kind of get to do it a long time is is to have fun doing it. And so for me, the two things that are fun are learning and teaching. Uh, and some of learning, there's some of teaching what I just learned. And so um, if my writing or my podcasting can be the process of me learning something or um, trying to enlighten other people with something that I know, those are, that's what makes it and I would say the same thing with the column. It's, the perfect world would be I have some insight. You know, I'm not a great reporter, so I'm not breaking news usually. I'm not telling somebody a news, a piece of news information that they do not know. Mm-hmm. But hopefully, what I can do is have um, like an intellectual scoop or an insight that they haven't thought of. Um, that is not, you know, hackneyed. Is not a cliche at this point. And um, every once in a while, I'm able to do that, and that's that's what makes it fun. And whether it's you know whether I'm doing it, um, and it's, ideally I'm doing it all the time. That to me is what uh, is what makes it fun. I will say it's also a job. I mean, I write three columns a week, and it's really hard to um, to be inspired three times a week and to have three brilliant ideas a week. And so. Um, I also see it as a job. A lot of times I get up and it's like, just like if you were a carpenter, you mm-hmm. know, or, or you may have visions of, of, you know, grand architecture and, and building a temple, but some days you're just putting like a deck on someone's house and that's yeah. okay. Yeah. Maybe work. Like some days I get up and I just write a column. Um, and so uh, part of, part of being able to, I think, excel and survive in this job is, is also being okay with those days um, when you just write a column. It's so interesting you say that too, because I just um, a few weeks ago, I spoke to Mary C. Curtis, who is a columnist for CQ Roll Call. And her columns, I think, are less frequent. I don't think that they're three times a week. But she did say that even now, after all this time, um, you know, it, it, it there is a process. And three times a week, you really have to, well, first off, you have to hope that the news cycle has turned over a little bit to write something fresh, right? Um, but yeah. then, but then you're right. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I worked with, uh, I worked with Mary at, uh, at AOL's Politics Daily, which is now defunct, which is another lesson of this career, which is, you're gonna have a great job working with cool people. And sometimes, you know, AOL uh, basically bought Huffington Post for $315 million, and, and almost all of us uh, ended up, I, I luckily went to the Daily Caller, but, but most of us ended up uh, being let go. Right. Uh, it's, it's a tough gig, um, but yeah, I think that um, there's a couple quotes um, 
that uh, that I really think of. Um, you know, one of them is uh, inspiration doesn't come to you. You have to go after it with a club. Um, and I think that's Jack London. Um, and then uh, Andy Rooney said something to the effect of, um, you know, if you're a writer, you don't sit around and wait for a good idea. You wake up in the morning and damn well decide to have one. Decide <laughs> to have one. <laughs> the thing with three columns a week is there really isn't um, – there isn't any, you're not saving up good ideas. Like right. if you have a good idea, you use it because you need three a week. Right. And so what you need to do is, is constantly be um, replenishing that well with things that you're reading and people you're talking to and mm-hmm. things you're learning that like, you don't even know if it's going to come in handy until the, a weird story happens and the news cycle changes. And then I read that book last week about Russia, you know, yeah. <laughs> luckily. <laughs> it came in handy. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and that makes a ton of sense. And and what you do have to hope for, I think, and that's true of, of a lot of uh, communications as well, is that those threads can then be pulled in a variety of different ways in order to sort of lead you back to a, a conversation maybe that you've had previously or one that's now evolved and changed. Um, but that is a little bit different than writing a book. Yeah. And part of it, too, is I was just telling my wife, that I've been super busy today, you know, I got up, uh, did two TV segments, Mm -hmm. then I did two podcasts where I interviewed two other people. Um, You and I are having this conversation, and then later on I'm going to be mentoring a young journalist on a phone call. Wow. Um, And all that was for free. None of that was actually my job. I could have had today completely off. Today's not a writing day for me. Mm-hmm. I could have had today completely off, and yet I've been super busy. And the thing is um, that if you want to make it, I think, in this business, then this is what you do on your day off. <laughs> Otherwise, you won't. You won't. I think I could probably, uh, you know, coast on fumes uh-huh. for a year or so if I just if I just sort of started um, chillaxing. But I think probably after a couple years, I, I would probably be out of the job. And I wouldn't really be relevant. Anymore. I suspect too the way your your biology is put together, the, the way that you like to, to live your life too, you would get bored pretty fast. I think that's sort of the nature of those of us that live here inside the Beltway. Uh, we just like to we like to stay busy and we like to stay fresh. And but you're right. I mean, you know that this is the job of a of a consultant and a columnist is that you know so we do have this ebb and flow and how do we fill our time? Um, but so my, I was getting back to the point that you wrote this great book. You wrote a book, and a book is not, that's not just one thought. I mean, that is a collection of a lot of thoughts, and that process takes a long time. How in the world do you manage that with all of these other tremendous things that you're doing? Like, talk to me a little, you know, someday when I, uh, I don't know, when I get the courage, maybe, I do have a book idea in mind that I'd love to write, um, but how did you, how do you get there? Like, talk to me a little bit about that process, because I'm fascinated by it. I think I cheated in a sense. So what happened is, um, I wrote the book, it's called Too Dumb to Fail, and I'm super proud of it. Basically, wrote it in 2015, 2014 and 2015, and it came out in January of 2016. And um, it was really the culmination, though, of, of columns that I'd been writing starting in about 2010. So um, I, I sort of was, was gaining knowledge and wisdom about the topic. It's about the conservative movement. Mm-hmm kind of how we got Trump, but um, 
I started cheating in the sense that I was, you know, I was got a head start. I was writing about this stuff for, you know, getting paid to write about this stuff for three or four years. Sure. And then I got the book deal. And I think a lot of authors, um, you know, the book is an outgrowth of, of, of previous work where mm-hmm. you gained like, a lot of institutional knowledge. But, um, but also I was working at the Daily Caller. I worked there for six years. Yeah. And I would basically show up at work. I like to get up early. I would go in. I would be there at like 7.30 in the morning. No one was there. And I would write. I would do my job until, until about 11.30 a.m. Mm-hmm. Which would basically be blogging for the Daily Caller. Yeah. And then I would go to lunch and I would come back and I would put in like two or three hours of writing the book every day at the Daily Caller, pretty much on their dime with yeah. their permission. Um, and I have to say, I really enjoyed writing the book. I loved it because as a columnist, I don't have the luxury of, you know, what will happen, you'll write a column and then the next, it'll be published and then the next day you'll be like, oh, I should have said this or I should have mm. used this word instead of that word. Sure. This word better. <laughs> and when you're writing a book, you have the you have the ability to do that. You to can go back you're in the adjust. shower. You're in the shower and it hits you like, ah, oh, I should have said this word instead and then you can go fix it. And so it was really a luxury to have the time, you know, uh, to write a book as someone who is usually under deadline of writing something, you know, within a matter of hours, not, sure. not months. Sure. And so once the book was done, um, you you did a lot of, you did a ton of promotion. Did you travel? Like what, how did that process come together? I mean, because you were busy. I mean, you were everywhere talking about the book. The timing was super on, on the, I mean, the nail on the head, right? I mean, it really sort of came right at the right time, but you must've been spending a lot of time on the road talking about it too. Yeah. And it was the only time that I was in my life that I've lost control of my schedule. Mm. And literally like I could have missed meetings or interviews um, and it would have completely, you know, escaped my mind and I would have missed a huge interview, like a, maybe even a TV interview because I was that busy. And uh, it's a sc- scary place to be and it shows that you really need help. Um, but no, I, I view the, um, you, you, your fiduciary responsibility, if someone entrusts you to pay you to write a book, then you owe it to them to put on the full court press mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and pull out all the stops. And honestly, if you spend a year or two of your life writing something that you really believe in, then you owe it to yourself to do that. So I called in every favor I had mm-hmm. um, and uh, did as much TV as I could. As many, as I basically didn't, didn't say, well, I did say no to a couple things. Uh, I think I said no to Larry King, who was on a Russia TV at the time. Um, that was a big decision because meeting Larry King and going on his show would have been really cool. Obviously, he was a legendary broadcaster. Yeah. But I just decided not to do it because of who was on Russia today. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, I don't think I said no to anything. I, I did some traveling, a lot of speeches, and a ton of TV. Um, and I'll say that, to be honest with you, nowadays in the publishing world, if, if you write a book, you, you can't expect to, you know, every publisher has um, PR people who are supposed to um, help you promote the book. Mm-hmm. And that, once upon a time, maybe they did, but, but most of the press I got were things that I made happen myself. I bet. And um, so I viewed, I viewed that as like a legitimate part 
of the job mm-hmm. was promoting it. Like half the job was writing the book and the other half was promoting it. Right. And luckily you had, you have so many good relationships and you have so many great, um, just, just great contacts and, and opportunities that you, I'm sure people were, were wanting to hear about the book. I mean, you, your, your connection with, um, when you're when you're in an interview you're you're broadcast the way you work matt and i think i've told you this before it's super authentic people like to hear from you the words you say are crystal clear we know exactly where you stand but it's also super thoughtful um and so i have to believe that those connections and those relationships that you've established over the course of your career ended up being very um very willing and interested in having you on to talk about the work that you have um had you know that you had published yeah i mean i would say i try to be decent person and, and and i try to do good work but i will say aside from just being nice to people because that's kind of what you ought to do um the last year as i was writing the book i basically said like not only am i taking on this huge extra job like i didn't take any time off from the daily caller they, they let me they let me write the book that's on terrific the clock, but i yeah. didn't but i didn't take any like you know, some people take a book leave where they take three months. I I didn't do any of that. So it's like, not only do I, you know, at this point, not only do I have like two little kids at home, you know, Mm. basically like a newborn and a a toddler at home. And not only am I taking on this additional job of writing a book, but anyone who asks me a favor for the next year, I have to do. If someone asks me to take them to the airport, I have to do it because I'm going to need them to help me promote the book. So, Taking a t- generally tally sheet of all of the job. favors you're going to need to cash in. <laughs> I, I literally did not. I didn't turn anybody down for a year. Oh, man. Well, and and now, you know, fast forward, here we are, we're five, six years past that time. Um, and you're still doing, you know, three columns a week. Do you think you've got another book in you? You've got some other ideas and, and thoughts about stuff you might want to do in the future? Yeah, I mean, as, as luck would have it, I, I, um, not at liberty to disclose any details, but I actually have a call tomorrow with a publisher um, about a proposal that I've written. And, and if, if that works, um, that would be awesome. If not, I've got probably two other ideas um, that I'd like to do. But, you know, it has been, like, as you noted, it's been like five or six years, mm. which is to say that... Um, well, the world has changed our, so much, too, since your book. Uh, I mean, your book was super timely when it came out in 16, but now, six years later, holy cow. I mean, the, everything's yeah. changed. So there's so much more to talk about, so much more to digest, and, you know take apart and put back together. And I have to believe that some of what's on your mind is, is some of what's happened over those years. Definitely. Um, and you know, one of the ideas I have, it's not, it's not the idea that, that I'm working on right now. Mm. Um, but one idea I have, uh, is, is to do something about the importance of community and culture. And, and maybe it would be part memoir, you know, my family, we actually moved from Alexandria to West Virginia a couple of years ago and I started doing things like coaching little league baseball and, mm-hmm. you know, going to this technically fundamental, fundamentalist church. Um, and, and, um, and I've also recently been, been reading books like um, Nisbet's book about uh, the importance of community uh, and Wendell Berry's book, um, about the unsettling of the West, uh, of America, the unsettling of America. And so, um, 
that's what I love. If, if I could take something, it's not a completely new idea, but, but books that were written you know, 30 or 40 years ago mm-hmm. um, and combining them with some new insight, maybe partially a memoir of, of what I'm doing and introducing or popularizing those really famous authors to a, to a new audience that may not be as familiar with them. That's fun to do. Like with Too Dumb to Fail, I did that a little bit as well, mm-hmm. um, where I took, you know, other books, including like, you know, books about like anti-intellectualism and politics and, uh, you know, by Hofstadter, um, which is a classic, but it's, it's, you know, I don't know, 50 years old. That was one of, of several books that inspired Too Dumb to Fail and that I think I helped um, bring some of those old ideas um, into the future. Yeah, and, and, and that's exactly what I was referencing when, when first we got started, is that, that that to me is the value in the work that you do, is that you, you do try to modernize. Like none of these, con- none of what we're living through today is new um, in that we have seen uh, these kinds of trends, these kinds of changes previously. Now they're different now. I mean, because there are so many other factors at play and involved and everything else. But I think that that's great because also too, it brings it up into a modern day conversation. So people can be reminded that we've seen this before and where does it, where did it take us the last time? And how is it that we'll arrive at whatever our new uh, evolution or change will be? Uh, So I love that. And I think, um, well, great. I'm looking forward to reading the next book. I'm also, uh, I'm building a Friday Reporter podcast library of books that folks have mentioned or or referenced or have written. So uh, I'll be sure to not only put uh, Too Dumb to Fail on our list, but some of those others that you mentioned. Um, So you mentioned that you moved to West Virginia. Love it there. I'm still in Alexandria. We miss you here. Uh, But a lot of people made a move out of the city and moved away from DC and have figured out how to be um, in other places because the pandemic did that for us, right? It helped us figure out that, you know, we pretty much can do what we do just about anywhere. Um, But also born in that time is Matt Lewis and the news. So talk to me a little bit about the podcast uh, because we'll do some cross promotion here. I'll be happy and and would love to sort of share uh, with my listeners where it is they can find your show so they can hear more about what it is you're doing. Tell me about the show though. Tell me what's, you've got great guests, you've got great conversations going. Talk to me a little bit about your thoughts behind how it all came together. Yeah, I've actually been doing it for like a dozen years, believe it or not. I've been podcasting for about a dozen years. And I was inspired by um, people like Adam Carolla, mm-hmm. who was a comedian who mm-hmm. was inspired from his radio job in Los Angeles and started what he calls his own pirate ship. So I started the podcast like a dozen years ago. And um, the point basically was, rather than playing defense, sitting around waiting for the phone to ring, someone to invite me on their TV show, why not be proactive and, and, and start producing your own content? So mm-hmm. that's what I did. Um, and I found that it, it, it had so many benefits. Um, for one thing, I get free books. People send me free books. Uh, I get to make friends. Like when I was at the Daily Caller, for example, I was almost like an ambassador for the Daily Caller. I, mm-hmm. I would bring all sorts of people, including mainstream journalists, into our office. We used to be on 17th and L, so conveniently located. And that was a really cool outreach to, to, to meet for me to personally network and meet with people. A lot of times, um, if you want to meet someone, if you just say, hey, you want to have coffee, they'll 
they'll say no or they'll make an excuse. But you say, hey, will you come on my podcast? Well, especially back in those days when it was more novel, mm-hmm. um, you could pretty much talk to anyone and meet anyone you wanted. Um, so there was that. I, also, I found that I was learning things. I was forcing mm-hmm. myself you know, to learn. I think David Brooks says he forces himself to make like one phone call a day where he calls somebody and interviews them. And I'm an introvert. For me, though, um, the podcast was like an excuse where I, I had to, um, you know, read books and, and call people and interview them. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it, it adds into my columns and it, it sometimes it gives me column ideas or even quotes or just broadens my perspective. So like, um, even if like nobody listened, it, I would still probably have to keep doing it. There's just so many other reasons to do it mm-hmm. that I can't. I really can't quit doing it. Well, and I mean, you just explained many, many of the reasons why I started this little podcast for the same reason. I wasn't really leaving my house. I wasn't doing a lot of networking. Networking is our lifeblood from on the journalism side or on the PR side. And I decided I wanted to talk to some of my friends that I hadn't connected with in a while. And that's part of the reason why the podcast for, for having conversations with, you know, our friends in journalism. But tell me, um, have you always broadcast on YouTube? Because it's only during the pandemic that I noticed that you were online. Or maybe it's that I've noticed that you've changed your hair. Oh, yeah. The hair has been very controversial. Um, <laughs> I didn't, no, mean, it, it, I didn't it, mean it to be, but maybe that's what made uh, me notice that you're doing this great online stuff, too. Because I know that you've been broadcasting. But have you always done it? Because this is, this is only broadcast right now. It's a, this little baby podcast is only one years old, but maybe someday I'll grow, up and, I'll grow up and blow dry my hair and get on YouTube too. So tell me, how long have you been doing that side of it as well? No, I've only been doing the YouTube thing for a couple of years. Okay. First, I, was, um, I got this program called Headliner, which allowed me to basically upload an image, like a cover of a book or a headshot and, um, with the audience. And so then you can embed that in a tweet. Like if you had a great audio podcast and you wanted to share a segment of it, Mm -hmm. or if you wanted to share the entire interview, you could do that. And as you might imagine, though, because we're very visual, people don't tend to click on static photos Mm -hmm. um, as much. And so then, you know, because of COVID, everyone started Zooming. So I was having these Zoom conversations with people that I was using as the audio podcast and I said, well, I might as well post, I have this YouTube page. I might as well post the video as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So it's only been a couple of years. Okay. Then my son, my son who is much more tech savvy than me, um, really convinced me to try to monetize YouTube, which isn't easy, but you know, he's a gamer. And so he, he follows these, these YouTube channels that have like millions of yeah millions yeah my kids my kids do the same thing they're like so into it yeah so but what what know, he it's hard it's it's hard to monetize because you have to have a thousand subscribers before you can make any money at all um and even then it's this weird thing where like once you hit the um, you know you, you hit the bar where you qualify. Then, like, Google, because Google owns YouTube, Google will mail. It has to be a physical address. They won't email you. They'll mail you a code in the mail that you have to type in. Interesting. And then now you are, like, uh, basically it's like filling out an application to try to get monitored. I don't know if it's always been this hard or if this is because of, like, misinformation or, or whatever on the oh, internet. Oh, could but be. Like, mm-hmm. it, 
it was it was a quite a heavy lift to to, to get monetized. And, and and now I'm probably making like maybe a few hundred bucks a month on a good month from mm-hmm. it. So, um, but you know, if if you were, um, you know, there are people like um, I don't know, blocked in the reporting, which is a a good podcast. You know, they could probably. I think I think they're making. Um, you know, like $60,000 a month from Patreon, something like that, something crazy like that. So, like, if you had those kind of, of numbers, you could probably also uh, make, a, make a lot of money on YouTube as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it's getting you noticed, uh, especially by your colleague right here on the other side of the uh, telephone. Um, and I love it. And I love what you're doing. And I um, keep it up. Uh, I'm glad to know that your house of, uh, of young smart humans is educating you too, because you. my house of young smart humans set up the pot, the pot, the, the soundboard that I use and the other, I mean, thank goodness for these uh, young IT geniuses, oh, we because <laughs> we need them in our life, right? <laughs> And I would also say with YouTube, it's a similar thing. Like when I started the podcast, I, I was sick of like sitting around waiting for people to invite me on their show. And then if they invited me on, I had a good day. If they didn't invite me on, I felt, you know, somehow I was letting them define whether I was, uh, you know, successful. Mm-hmm. And so I, I became proactive. And I would say with the YouTube thing, it's the same thing. Like, Okay, I'm going to go on TV literally, you know, well, not literally, but basically I'm going to make my own video. You know? I love it. Yeah. Um, and so rather than rather than sitting around waiting for the phone to ring, you know, you, you make things happen on your own terms. Totally agree. And, and it, and it works. And I'm sure it reminds, like I said, it reminds people that you're out there and that you're doing this great, making this great content and, and having great conversations with folks. Um, Matt, as we get to the end of our 30 minutes, I'm curious, um, are there, do you think there's someone that you can think of that might be uh, a good future guest for me to have a conversation with? Yeah, I think I would recommend Matthew Contanetti, who is um, a right, you know, he's at American Enterprise Institute, but he, mm-hmm. he writes for, you know, the, the Washington Free Beacon. But he has a great new book out, too, called The Right. And um, he puts out a lot of content, including this book. And, um, I would, I think he would be a, a really interesting person to talk to. In fact, I'm hoping to talk to him myself. Awesome. Well, good. Well, I certainly know who he is. And I actually had uh, Aaron Harrison from the Washington Free Free Beacon join me maybe, I don't know, several months back. He's an old friend. And we talked about sort of how the Free Beacon got started and what they have done. And and, uh, Matthew being one of the very, very bright young writers who have been uh, doing great work for those guys for for some time. So I will tell him you uh, nominated him for a future show. And Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's today's Friday Reporter Podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.